we are, we are in a series of uh, sermons on can God use me? That is, uh, some of us for various reasons don't think that either God will use us or can use us or that we have anything to give or that we are, uh, are insignificant or whatever. And we're trying to look at various people that God has used in the past to enable us to see what kind of people he uses. And so we have been looking at the book of Judges because the book of Judges probably has the largest accumulation of different kinds of people that God has used. There's a common theme in the book of Judges. Israel turns away from God. God punishes her. They cry out for help. So he sends them a savior and everything is fine as long as that savior is alive and then he dies and then Israel backslides again and God punishes her and they cry out for help and he sends them a redeemer and this goes on cycle after cycle after cycle. Um, we have looked at two persons. Uh, one of them is Ehud, the left-handed judge and he is in some ways a misfit because he is left-handed in a society that is basically right-handed, and then Deborah, who is a woman in a society dominated by men. So Ehud really doesn't fit very well with society, and Deborah doesn't fit very well by, in society, but God decides to use those people of all the different people that he could have used. And this morning, I want us to look at the book of Judges, chapter 6, the judge Gideon. So we're going to look at Gideon. This, the amount of space that is given to Gideon is a lot more than any of the judges up to this point. So he receives a lot of space. And, and Gideon is very fascinating. In some ways, he picks up themes that we have already encountered, but then explores other uh, Misfittings, if you please. Israel, again, backslides, and God oppresses her with the Midianites. When they are oppressed by the Midianites, they cry to the Lord. So look at Exodus, uh, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 6, verse 7. When Israel cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Now, this is rather interesting because all the other times he sent them a deliverer. Deborah was a prophetess, and maybe he is connecting this theme here, that God is going to send them a prophet who is able to explain things rather than just to lead armies. And so, God sends them a prophet. This prophet is not the one who's going to lead them to war. This is not the deliverer, but he is a prophet and he has a word from God. I happen to teach at a Christian liberal arts university and at seminary. A very essential part of my job is to train future pastors and, and to be a mentor and, and to guide and to help with their faith and as well as with academics. And because my 
job is not biology or physics or literature or music because it is biblical studies with special interest in preparing future past pastors, we watch constantly what's happening with Christianity. We want to understand how Christianity is now as opposed to how it was at the time of Martin Luther and the Great Reformation. Not in any way to belittle Martin Luther and the Reformation, but we're not living then, we're living here. We're living in 2015. We want to understand global Christianity in 2015. And so, when you ask outsiders or even insiders, what is the kind of Christianity that we have inherited in 2015? What kind of Christianity do we experience? And the answer is, Christianity has gone through two stages, and these two stages have affected what our Christianity looks like now. The first stage is in the 1900s. In effect, what happened in America is that Christianity split into two branches, not Catholic and Protestant or Presbyterians and Methodists, not that kind of split, but you ended up with Christianity in New England and Christianity out west. And so in New England, uh, you have Christianity associated with intellectualism, with studies, with academics, with uh, intellectual pursuit. Uh, Christianity was dominated by Princeton University and the theologians at Princeton University. And if you talked to that group of Christians and you asked them, what do I need to do? How do I know that I'm a Christian? The answer would be, can you write a valid statement of faith? So the evidence that I'm a Christian is my ability to write a valid, biblical, genuine, appropriate statement of faith. On the other hand, in the West, we had more Christianity of the feelings the campfire Christianity, the give-me-that-old-time-religion kind of Christianity, Christianity of feelings and experience. So you can say, I you know, I, the Lord said to me, or you can give your testimony as opposed to a statement of faith. So you had the intellectual Christianity headed by Princeton and uh, experiential Christianity. Well, which is correct? Well, that's an interesting question to ask, but last time I read Deuteronomy, it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with... And several things are mentioned there. Your heart, your mind, your work. So it's not either or. But that, in effect, is what has happened in uh, Christianity in America. You still have intellectual Christianity, and then you still have experiential Christianity. The other thing that is true about American Christianity is that when you ask outsiders, how would you describe Christianity in America? The answer is, it is Sweden on top of India. 
Now, let me see. Does anybody know anything about what I just finished saying? Does anybody have the slightest idea what Sweden on top of India mean? The United Nations did a major research. And as a result of this research, it found out that the most religious country in the world is India. Now, that doesn't mean that they worship the living God. Uh, some worship one God, some worship three gods, some worship three million gods. Uh, there are all kinds of religions. Hinduism is as broad as it can come. There is no Hinduism. There is about like 12 Hinduisms. And so, practically everyone in, in, in India, as, as high as 95% or maybe even higher, believe in some kind of a god. The least religious country in the world is Sweden. So when you take surveys of do you believe in God, in Sweden you get the lowest score possible. So Sweden on top of India means that in America we, our Christianity, in some, our society in some ways looks like India, in some ways it also looks like Sweden. How is that? We have far more evangelicals percentage-wise in America than surely in France or in England or in Australia. We have more people who say they believe in God, more people who go to churches, etc., etc. Over country after country and after country, and God raised Elijah and Elisha to stop it from spreading. So the worship of Baal never became the official religion of Israel, but in practice, practice is always different, not always, but often different from regular worship. So Gideon is saying, um, I don't see any miracles, therefore God is not with us. In a second, we'll have to think about that from a Christian perspective. So God must have abandoned us. Even though the angel, uh, the angel is telling him, the Lord is with you. I think I'd be hesitant to disagree with the angel of the Lord. I'd be happy, I, I, I wouldn't be brave enough to say, you're wrong. You know. I don't care what university I graduated from, I wouldn't tell him, you're wrong. But he is struggling with two things, that he is a mighty warrior and that the Lord is with him. So in response to the Lord is with you, he says, no, he's not. But now we've got the other problem. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So the Lord turned to him, verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midianite's hand. Am I not sending you? Go, deliver. And look at his response, verse 15. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. In Greek philosophy, when the Greeks wanted to 
find a word from the gods, they went to a place called, uh, well, it, it was at, uh, at Delphi where you received an oracle from the gods. The oracle usually was basically a kind of a standard answer, which is know yourself. And you can interpret that in a variety of ways. You know, maybe I need to know my strengths, maybe I need to know my weaknesses, maybe I need to know what I'm good at, what I'm bad at, what I'm clever at, what, what I'm dumb at. So know yourself. The more you know yourself, the better off you, you are. Uh, that's not what the oracle meant to convey. What it meant to convey is that you're human and you're not a god, so live with that limitations. Um, it looks like Gideon knows himself. So he says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Weak and strong is relative. It depends on whom you're comparing with. My daughter graduated tops in her high school. So she went to University of California where I went and she joined the honors program. And she was very frustrated. And she wrote me, she said, Dad, there is nothing that I can do to get an A in this class. So I said, talk to the teacher. So she went to the professor and said, what do I have to do to get an A in this class? I've always gotten A's. I've never gotten anything other than A's. You know, I graduated tops in high school. And he said, oh, if you want to get A's, go to an easier university. <laughs> she said to me, she talked to the other students. She said, valedictorian was average. Valedictorian is average in that program. We have, in America, approximately 5,000 universities. About, about 150 produce excellent athletes that we watch on TV, in basketball and, and volleyball and, and football and soccer and things like that. If you take the best player from every one of those 120 universities, these are the MVPs in their conferences. If you take these players and when it comes to bidding and to recruiting, do you know how many make it in professional sports? You will be surprised. You are MVP in your conference. And you, recruit, and you are drafted by the LA Lakers. And you think you're going to be the next, you know, Will Chamberlain or whoever. And guess what you do? At the end, you sit there, number 12. They're lucky if anybody knows you exist. To be strong or to be weak depends on who you're competing with. If you lower standards, 
you know, if you lower standards low enough, Jack the Ripper could be a saint, you know. I mean, you just have to lower. So he's, he says, I am the least in my family. Okay, so you are the least in that family. It is one thing to know yourself. It is something else to use that knowledge as an excuse not to minister. It's okay to say I'm not good at it. There are lots of things I'm not good at. If, you, if anything happens to your car, for heaven's sake, don't come to me. I don't know anything about cars. I know zilt, close to zero about biology. But it is one thing to say I am weak. It is something to say consequently because of my weakness I refuse to witness. We'll get back to this point. We're not, we're not away from it. We'll get back to it. So, verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. He said, I'll be with you three times already in one paragraph. He will win because God is with him. The Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. Both statements are true. What happens sometimes is that God sees us in the way he sees us but we refuse to accept it. We want to keep seeing ourselves in the way that we want to see ourselves. We're not willing to let God, we resist God when he tries to bring out the potential and so he has to play hardball in some cases. So, I will be with you, verse 16. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign. Barak, give me a sign. If you go, I'll go. If you don't go, I don't go. So it doesn't matter that God is speaking to him. He wants a sign. It, it, it shows how bad things are. The Midianites are defeating Israel when Israel is ten times stronger than the Midianites, but that is because Israel has turned away from God and God is punishing them. The fact that it is the Midianites, not the Egyptians, not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, not some great world power, the fact that it's the Midianites who, who are defeating the Israelites is, is embarrassing. Try to imagine this, that Bradford High School invites the basketball team, invites the Chicago Bulls to a game, and Bradford wins. You could ask, what does that tell you about Bradford? I'd like to ask a different question. What does it tell you about uh, the Chicago Bulls? Where are the glory days? There are no glory days if Bradford can beat them. The Midianites are beating up on us. What could be more insulting? It's like if you race a two-year-old 50 yards and the two-year-old beats you in the race. So, 
God performs a sign and he is convinced it is God. And now to this delightful portion of scriptures, God says, you know, in your village, you're supposed to be worshiping me and look what we have here. We have an altar for Baal and a, and a pole, a wooden pole for Asherah, consort, Baal's consort. So he says, chop it down and build me an altar using that wood. Well, the verb to hack something down is the word for Gideon. A, pa a person, pun intended, in case I'm warning you ahead of time so you'll catch the pun. Uh, a person whose name is Hacker is supposed to hack the pole. At least I can tell at least three people sitting in front got it. <laughs> so he wants to obey God. God has talked to him. You're a mighty man. Go do it. But look at this wonderful delight. Look at verse 27 in chapter 6. 627. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. God is with him. He doesn't know how to overcome his cowardice. He does it at night. I would have said, come on, be brave. But at least he obeys God. It's better to obey God cowardly than not to obey God cowardly. But at least he does it at night. And then there's the argument the next day, who did it? This, at least he has shown himself to be faithful on small things. It's only, a it's only an altar, it's only a pole, but he has shown himself faithful. He's getting somewhere. He is willing to obey God. He is willing to be used on a small scale. And if God trusts us on small things, he will make us responsible for bigger things. But there is a battle to be fought, and so he calls the people from uh, Israel, and, and he f uh, has a great army. So, look at chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. He has just reduced his army by two-thirds. I think to myself, where was that verse? Why didn't they tell us that before they sent us off to Vietnam? I wouldn't have gone if I had that option. But the army is now down to 10,000. You don't win by reducing the size of the army. You win by doubling the army. 
for every soldier they have, you have three, and then you can win. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Verse 4, But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. And so do this test. And they're down to 300 people. You start with about 32,000 soldiers, you're down to 300. What is God thinking? God is thinking that he knows how to win. And he does not want us to think stupidly that the victory is ours. The power comes from God. And when we are the weakest, God is the strongest. That's a basic lesson we have to learn. And if you're strong, I feel bad for you because God is going to have to play tough with you to make you feel weak. So, God sends them. They don't even fight. It's dark, and the army is confused, and the army defeats itself. What is going on? What is going on is a lesson that we all know. First of all, if I said, like Gideon, the Lord has abandoned us, I would know I was wrong because I've heard Jesus say, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. I know Jesus has said, I would be with you always, even to the end of the age. I know I've heard Jesus say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So Midian might think he would be able to get away with it. We can't. We cannot say, God has abandoned us. God has said instead, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And to conclude, please turn to 2 Corinthians. Please turn to this wonderful passage by Paul, who experienced this whole issue. How do we understand strength? How do we understand weakness? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is true of us individually that is true of our church. The power comes from God. 
the power comes from God, and we are not abandoned. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for using weak, afraid, unsure people. Thank you for working in their lives and in our lives so that they learn to obey even when they're afraid. They, they accept their mission even when they're hesitant. Father, I suspect there are far more cowards than there are heroes in normal churches. That some of us are hesitant and are afraid to be used, but you want to use us. I pray that we would have confidence in you, not in ourselves. That we will rely on you, not on ourselves. And we thank you, Father, that you are always with us. We, we give you much thanks and gratitude and appreciation. In Jesus' name, amen.